Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When it comes to music, it is so easy to get lost in the weeds, to become distracted by all the minutia and all the trivia. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. It's the study of exactly this kind of granular stuff that pays my salary. However, there is a can't-see-the-forest-for-the-trees angle to all this. Sometimes we need to stand way back, and I mean way back, before some vital things come into focus. I'm not talking about just learning not to see the trees by the forest, but the whole of the countryside. No, wait, wait, there's, there's more than that. We need altitude. Not just a 35,000-foot view, but maybe all the way up into geosynchronous orbit so we can assess everything about a certain subject. Okay, wait a second. This, this metaphor is out of control. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that if we step back far enough, we can learn some really interesting things about why music is the way it is. What you're about to hear may change the way you think about the history of music. This is big picture stuff. Really big picture stuff. Part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. And that sort of sets the tone for the next couple of programs. Vancouver's Subhumans with The Big Picture from 1980. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and we are pulling away. We are moving way, way back to look at some ultra big picture ideas and concepts to get a better understanding of why music is the way it is. These are perspectives that you may have never been taught or told about or otherwise discovered on your own. Back in the 1970s, the BBC premiered a show called Connections, starring science historian James Burke. I love this show. Over the course of about 20 years and 70 shows, Burke showed how seemingly unconnected scientific achievements and discoveries mated with historical events. And it turns out that they were actually connected, but not in ways you'd have ever expected. Yet without all these interconnections, society and technology and medicine and all the other things that make up modern life uh, would have never happened. We'd have been screwed. Human existence is not linear. We are the product of an infinite web of events that have combined to produce the unexpected. When something happens, no matter how trivial, it might set off a butterfly effect that changes everything. Now, I would like to take James Burke's connections model and try to apply it to music. This is going to be very, very interdisciplinary. Science and technology, anthropology, politics, economics, and much more. You ready? Away we go. We are going to start at the beginning, the very origins of music. Different parts of our brain specialize in different things. Memory, speech, emotion, vision, hearing, autonomic functions like breathing and heartbeats. And there's also part of the brain that specializes in music. Now, on the surface, this is very, very weird. There doesn't seem to be a biological or evolutionary reason why our brains should be hardwired for music. Why do we understand music as special sorts of sounds? Why do we store musical memories in a different part of the brain than regular memories? Why does music cause the brain to secrete feel-good hormones in exactly the same way as an orgasm? Just doesn't make sense, at least on the surface. 
Charles Darwin was confused by this too. He thought human appreciation of music might somehow be related to the mating calls of birds and other creatures. In other words, the music centers of our brain are related to our need for sex, or more specifically, the need for the species to reproduce. Okay, not a bad theory. Some estimates say that almost 90% of the songs ever written have something to do with love or sex. Okay. Or it may have something to do with raising young. Anthropologists have yet to find any societies that don't use lullabies to calm babies and to stop them from crying. Now, when you think of it, that's a form of survival mechanism. You don't want a lion or some other predator to be alerted to the presence of a young, helpless morsel of food. Again, kind of makes sense. Digging a little deeper, it appears that early humans used music as a collective voice. It brought individuals together in time of celebration and sadness, for rituals and for war. But here's my favorite theory. We have ancient stories passed down for generations, not just dozens or hundreds, but thousands of generations. For the longest time, none of these stories were written down because there was no such thing as written language. So how best to preserve this important cultural information? Set them to music. It's now thought that myths and folk tales and histories managed to survive for so many years because they were stored and passed down as songs. And not just from the ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks, but as far back as when early humans were just starting to migrate out of Africa. Music, therefore, evolved in a special place in our brains because we needed to mate, we needed to keep our babies from turning us all into food, we needed to bring the tribe together, and we needed to preserve our stories and thus our culture. Okay, how, how's that for a big picture view of things? I think we uh, need to ponder that for just a few minutes. Meanwhile, here's a song about brains. Green Day and Brain Stew. Okay, now that we've established that music has probably been with us for several hundred thousand years, another big picture item is how we actually came to determine what music actually sounded like. How was music institutionalized into the notes that we use today? Well, this appears to have started somewhere around the year 570 BC with Pythagoras. Yeah, the uh, same guy we heard about in math class with the famous Pythagorean theorem recording the length of the sides of a triangle. You know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That made him a big deal in geometry. But Pythagoras was also arguably the most important person in the history of music. Before he came along, music was unconstrained, undefined when it came to notes and tuning and singing. This was chaos to Pythagoras's ears. So he set about to coordinate and confine musical sounds using math and science as his guide. What he did is what still allows us to distinguish melody from noise, and virtually all music, no matter how you look at it, is Pythagorean in some way or another. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, Pythagoras experimented by plucking strings of different lengths and noting the sounds that they generated. He noticed that a string exactly one half the length of another produced a tone exactly twice as high. This led to organizing tones as ratios of one tone to another, a ratio of three to two to be exact, and because this organization was rooted in pure math, anyone anywhere could use it. 
It soon became the only way to look at musical tones when it came to things like intonations and scales, and Pythagorean tuning became the basis for tuning instruments and thus composing music. Remember, this is about 570 BC. Here is an example of a composition using Pythagorean tuning. Because of the underlying math, some say that this is the most natural way of tuning an instrument, and thus the most natural way of creating music. Can you feel how the tuning of that piano is different from what we're used to? In fact, it was pretty much the only accepted way of tuning for Western music until the beginning of the 1500s. After that, there were experiments with different tunings that allowed music to go into new directions. By the 1800s, Western music had moved beyond Pythagorean tuning. But that doesn't change the fact that about 2,500 years ago, a Greek mathematician became the first to make the argument that music should be based on math, thereby setting up all the music that we listen to today. Okay, uh, I need a song for this so we can digest all that information. And I actually found a song called Pythagoras by a group called Megamath. So, please enjoy. A squared plus B squared is C squared. A squared plus B squared is C squared. That's what he said till he was dead. If A is three Okay, just proving that there's a song for just about everything. Before we leave this idea of tuning, I want to blow your mind with another big picture concept, and it has to do with an ordinary knife. First, though, understand that not everybody was down with Pythagoras' style of organizing music. Other cultures were fond of using the notes between Pythagoras' perfect natural ratios. Some African music, for example, music from the Indian subcontinent, China, and also the U.S. South fairly recently. And this is where the knife comes in. The blues came out of the Deep South, beginning in about the 1870s, following the end of slavery. Its constituent parts were slave work songs, spiritual music, and musical traditions from Africa. It became known as the blues because it incorporated so-called blue notes, notes in between accepted tones that we find on, let's say, a piano keyboard. Today, we call these bent notes and are outside conventional scales. If you want to throw things back to Pythagoras, these are exactly the kind of notes he wanted to eliminate from music because of their natural imperfections. He liked discrete notes. Blues players do not. One of the earliest and most effective ways to conjure up these blue notes, these notes that weren't notes, was to use a knife on the fretboard of a guitar to bend the strings. If a knife wasn't available, well, then a broken bottle would do. These untunings spread to jazz, then R&B, then rock, and everywhere else. In fact, now it's hard to imagine any rock without these sounds. Check out the solo Jack White does in his song Lazaretto, as well as the guitar lines in the second half of the song. Those are not notes found on a piano. Pythagoras would not approve. Jack White and Lazzarato, lots of blue notes in that one. When we come back, the answer to the question, who was the first singer-songwriter ever? Hint, it was a woman. Welcome back to the first of a couple of programs dealing with big picture concepts in music. Here's a good question. Who was the first ever singer-songwriter? 
It appears to have been a royal Sumerian woman, a high priestess in the city-state of Ur. Her name was Enhedwana. This is the first composer we know by name. She lived around 2300 BC and was a poet whose works were set to music and used as hymns to various Sumerian gods in the temple. Enhedwana performed some of these songs herself. And while all of her songs were religious in nature, some were, uh, well, kind of dirty and sexy. All those old goddess and goddesses got up to some busy stuff, you know. We cannot find any documentation of any earlier music attributed to a specific composer. So as far as history is concerned, Edidwana was the first ever singer-songwriter. However, in ancient times, music was only supposed to be used for three things. Religious rituals, telling stories, some happy or some sad, known as lamentations, and singing the praises of great men, and they were almost always men. Anyone who stepped outside that subject matter, uh, well, let's just say that that was unwise. So, no love songs? Nope. At least not until Sappho came along. She was a poet from the Greek island of Lesbos. She wrote lyric poetry, which was supposed to be sung and accompanied by someone on a lyre. She also became known as a symbol of love and desire between women. So now you know where the words sapphic and lesbian came from. It's unknown if Sappho sang and played the lyre herself because most of her work has been lost. Uh, so let's insert a little Tegan and Sarah here. Since we're talking about women in music, here's something the history books don't talk about. In ancient times, and I'm talking very ancient times, women were involved in music as drummers. The drum is the oldest instrument known to humans. All you need is something to hit. In ancient times, women were very, very important to drumming because they were the ones entrusted to keep the beat with the music designed to induce trance states. So very religious, very ritualistic, very mystical, very ravey. We know this because of carvings, paintings, and sculptures from the ancient world. And we're talking about 3,000 years ago. And they show that the drum is definitely a woman's instrument. This was the case in Egypt around the time of the pyramids, throughout Mesopotamia and places like Sumeria, ancient Greece, and ancient Israel. Over the centuries, though, women were moved away from their drums as the instrument was overtaken by men, who turned them into military tools for going into battle. Big picture, though, is that women were humanity's first formalized drummers. In honor of that ancient tradition, here's Luscious Jackson featuring Kate Schellenbach on drums. She was once part of the Beastie Boys before they took off. Her resume also includes winning an Emmy Award as a segment producer on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. And she's also a producer with The Late Late Show with James Corden. Here she is playing with Luscious Jackson. This is Daughters of the Chaos from 1992. Always give shelter to a man a little luscious Jackson featuring drummer Kate Schellenbach honoring ancient women drummers. Here's another big picture view of music. For the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, growing cotton underpinned the economy of the U.S. South. Picking cotton required a lot of labor, and that labor came in the form of slaves from Africa. At the end of the American Civil War in 1865, slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment. For a while, this former slave population stayed in the South because they really had nowhere to go. 
Before 1910, 90% of all African Americans lived in the South. But living conditions were awful. Poverty, racial discrimination, segregation, the Jim Crow laws which made this kind of treatment legal. So after a while, many just refused to put up with this and moved north. This is called the Great Migration. Some 2 million African Americans moved out of the U.S. South to the Midwest and Northeast between 1910 and 1940, thanks also to the expansion of the railroad system. They settled in cities like Memphis, St. Louis, Chicago, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Detroit, and naturally, they brought their culture with them. That included music, work songs, spirituals, gospel, African influences, and this led to the birth of two extremely important musical genres, jazz and the blues. Jazz was born out of a form of African-American sound called ragtime, which first appeared in St. Louis in the very late 1800s. This music was deliberately unsmooth. Its rhythms were syncopated or ragged. An offshoot of ragtime took hold in New Orleans before migrating north with African-Americans. And that was jazz, which became the music that drove American culture until the mid-1950s. We're going to come back to ragtime in just a second, so uh, hang tight. At the same time jazz was coming together, so were the blues. It had its roots in the U.S. South, maybe as early as 1870, but was beginning to be widely heard by 1901 or 1902. We had gramophones and phonographs by then. This music was much simpler in arrangement than jazz, requiring little more than a guitar and a voice. It took roots in venues known as juke joints, places where African Americans gathered to listen to music, dance, and drink. Juke joints were connected together in something known as the Chitlin Circuit. Musicians would tour from juke joint to juke joint, spreading what they did. This extended from Florida all the way to the Apollo Theater and Cotton Club in New York City. In the process, the blues mixed with country music, western music, and hillbilly music. And by the early 1950s, we have a descendant called rock and roll. Again, hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to this. Through the 1920s and 30s, jazz was performed by big bands. They were called that because they were bands and they were big. They could have up to 20 players, maybe more. Lots of horns and guitars, piano, double bass, drums, and maybe a vocalist or two. But maintaining a band this size was expensive. The Depression did not help. And when World War II came along, musicians went off to war. Crowds coming to see these big bands dwindled. There was also a paralyzing musician strike in the U.S. that lasted from 1942 to 1944, which pretty much shut down the recording industry. In the post-war years, there was a labor shortage. Industry sucked up a lot of people who might have otherwise made a living as a musician. The upshot of all this is that these groups were forced to downsize. So instead of 20 players, they shrunk to six or five or four. Some of them played a less danceable form of jazz called bebop. Others began to emphasize the rhythm and the beat. And by the late 1940s, this became known as rhythm and blues. Add in country, western, hillbilly, and traditional blues, and you have the conditions for the birth of rock in the 1950s. All that, the rise of rock and roll, began with the great migration of the early 20th century, which was made possible by the ratification of the 13th Amendment outlawing slavery on December 6, 1865. How's that for a big picture view? Oasis and rock and roll star. A few more really big picture items pertaining to music coming up in seconds. 
This is part one of a look at big picture scenarios throughout the history of music. Here's another good one. Studies around the world of various cultures point to the fact that humans display a preference for music played at a tempo of 120 beats per minute. Examples include Don't Stop Believin' by Journey, most popular download in the history of iTunes, Rumor Has It from Adele, and It's My Life from Bon Jovi. We also prefer songs written in 4-4 time. 1-2-3-4, That's the dance beat, the rock beat, the disco beat. But this wasn't always the case. Prior to 1900, the most popular time signature for songs was three-quarter time, waltz time. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Think uh, the Star Spangled Banner or Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But then, about 120 years ago, Western music underwent something that might be called the Great Metric Shift. After about 1910, we'd moved from one, two, three, one, two, three to one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Why? Well, that's a pretty fundamental change in musical rhythm. Most musicologists will credit ragtime, that highly rhythmic, syncopated, choppy kind of playing that predated the arrival of jazz. Here's an example. That's called Maple Leaf Rag, written in 1899 by an African-American pianist named Scott Joplin. That was considered pretty radical for its day. That would have been, you know, the metal or the goth or the, you know, weirdo alternative music of its day. Because so much of the music the Victorian ear liked was in waltz time. And then Joplin comes along and plays his rags, and he wrote many, in 2-4 time. Now... This did not go over very well with a lot of people. Let me quote from a music magazine from 1900. The editors were very concerned about this whole ragtime thing. This is a quote. The counters at the music stores are loaded with a virulent poison, which, in the form of malarious epidemic, is finding its way into the homes and brains of the youth to such an extent as to arouse one's suspicions of their sanity. So, talking about ragtime, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of racism in there, too. As ragtime begat jazz, jazz players expanded that two beats per bar into four beats per bar. And as jazz became the primary driver of culture, at least in a musical sense, 4-4 four, four time took over. And now, more than 90% of music, maybe even more, is in 4-4 four, four time. Here's a song that moves between 2-4 and 4-4 four, four time. Y'all don't want to hear me, you just want to dance. I have one more big picture situation for this episode. It began on December 8th, 1941, when Japan invaded the Malay Peninsula. This immediately created a problem for the recording industry. You go, what? Okay, let me, let me explain. The jungles of what now includes modern-day Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, and Singapore is where we find the female lockbug living happily up in the trees. The lockbug secretes a waxy, resin-like material that is scraped away and turned into varnish and shellac. And the Malay Peninsula was the world's primary source of this goo. In the 1940s, shellac was one of the primary components used to make phonograph records. The formula was one-third shellac and two-thirds minerals, like powdered limestone or slate, along with a dash of cotton fibers to bind everything together. 
plus a little dash of carbon to change the color of everything from a dirty brown to a more pleasing black. But because the Malay Peninsula was now under hostile control by the Japanese Imperial Army, the world's supply of raw materials for shellac, and therefore records, was shut down. This created a shortage of records, and for a while in the 1940s, the only way to get a new record was to trade in an old one. The music industry at the time was already under a lot of pressure, thanks to that American musician strike that lasted from 1942 to 1944. Somebody had to come up with a solution to this shellac crisis. This is where Columbia Records stepped in with their chief engineer, a guy by the name of Dr. Peter Goldmark. Goldmark was told to come up with a substitute for shellac. Goldmark's team came up with a solution. It was to make records out of a new artificial substance first used to make sewer pipes back in the 1920s. It was called polyvinyl chloride, or vinyl for short. Vinyl proved to be much more durable for phonograph records, and because the grooves could be cut so much closer together, these records could hold five times the amount of music per side than an old 78 RPM shellac disc. And in the years following the introduction of the 12-inch 33 and a third vinyl album and the 7-inch 45 RPM single, the recorded music industry took off and became a multi-billion dollar business. And this is where we are today, all because the Japanese Imperial Army cut off the West's supply of this particular type of bug goo. Hardcore vinyl fan Eddie Vedder with Pearl Jam and Let the Records Play from the Lightning Bolt album from 2013. On the second half of our look at big picture events and connections in the history of music, we're going to focus on technology. For example, I will explain why the 1973 Arab-Israeli War led to the introduction of the compact disc. We'll also look at how a desire to create a 19th century robot led to all singers using microphones. If you want more of this sort of thing, there are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you can get on-demand audio. They're all free, of course. If you need me through other means, there's my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter so you don't miss anything. I can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Perhaps we can connect that way. And if you want to email me, I'm always available through alan at alancross.ca. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.